Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 126. A happy early Festivus to everybody out there. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. Festivus, of course, December 23rd. You could be listening to this on Festivus. Are there any Wisconsin sports grievances you would like to air? We start with Joe Barry. This Festivus is not over until Joe Barry pins us. Any grievances about Craig Council? Any grievances about the non-salary cap in Major League Baseball? We could go on and on. We should do a whole Festivus episode. This actually would be a good idea for next year. We've already got today's episode laid out, so we're not doing it this year. But somebody put that in the tickler file for next year, a whole Festivus episode. We'll talk about the Packers and Panthers. I've got a little audio I want to play for you coming up at the beginning of the podcast about the 1996, I guess technically calendar year, 97 Packer-Panther NFC Championship game. Since the Packers are now down on the playoff scale, we'll go back to Packer-Panther memories, Packer memories. I tracked down on YouTube the old Fox intro package to that NFC Championship game. It is just a wave of nostalgia. We'll play you some audio of that coming up. We'll, of course, talk about the game Packers desperate for a win if they want to stay in playoff contention. If you are in the camp now of wanting a higher draft pick and wanting Joe Barry to be fired, you may be rooting for a loss. Injury reports are out. They look okay on each side. There's no reason the Packers shouldn't win this game, but we'll discuss that as we go forward. The Bucks are hot, man. Seven-game homestand wraps up last night against Orlando. They went 7-0. and The offensive rating is way up. The defensive rating is getting better. They've been given a couple months now, and we're starting to see the promises of the offseason come to fruition. We will discuss that. The Brewers do swing a trade. And the Dodgers now have spent over $1 billion on two free agents as they bring in the prized Japanese import Yamamoto, the pitcher. They signed him to a $340 or $330 million deal last night. Just crazy. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, and and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, happy Festivus. Merry Christmas. I think Hanukkah just ended. Happy holidays. We'll cover all of our bases here. In the year 2023, you must cover all of your bases. The podcast overlords dictated. Oh, well, welcome in. We've got a kitchen table podcast. We have off today, which I was very surprised about. Midwest Communications giving us the Friday observance of Christmas Eve. I thought with Christmas Eve on Sunday, no way they'd give us off on Friday, but they did. Get out of here, they said. 
So we are doing this from the kitchen table and enjoying some coffee and getting ready to make some of the holiday Chex Mix that I'm responsible for. So we'll be getting after that this afternoon. Just having an overall nice, relaxing day. Betting on some college basketball tonight. (laughs) Betting on some college football tonight. We'll get to picks later on in the episode, too. Like I said on, what day is it? On Monday's podcast, 3-0-2 last week. We are 46-29-5 now on the year. I can't believe it. We're going to take some risks, though, when we get to the end of this podcast and make our picks. I'm not super comfortable with really any of these, but we're have, we have such a good record now. You may as well play with it a little bit. Live a little, John. Get busy living or get busy dying. We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. I do want to play you this like we teased off the top. It is Packers-Panthers this weekend, Christmas Eve in Carolina. It conjures up memories of the 1996 NFC Championship game, which I'm almost certain a week or two ago, That NFL Network had one of their classic games on, and that was on that game, and I watched a lot of it, and it just brought back so many good memories of that day. I'll never forget that day. There are certain days that just stick out in your brain as a kid as we're heading toward Christmas season. That there are there are a lot of days like that. The day I got my Sega Genesis, the day I got my Ghostbusters Firehouse. What was your favorite Christmas gift as a kid? The day that I got my first ever Packer tickets was a Christmas Day situation. My sister got them for me and my dad. Went to the Bronco Packer game in 2003. But it brings back a lot of good memories of that day and the culmination of the Packer renaissance in the 90s with Favre and Ron Wolf and Holmgren and the whole deal, Antonio Freeman and the team getting better again after 20-plus years of just garbage. It all culminates at an icy Lambeau field, which hearkened back to the ice bowl. It wasn't that cold, but it was barely into single digits that day when they took on the Panthers at Lambeau Field, January of 97. I think it was three degrees, maybe a kickoff, wind chill just below zero. They had the early game that day. They had the two o'clock game. The AFC title game was the late game that day. It was just beautiful blue sky and sunshine. I remember sitting in our living room on 6th Street in Sheboygan, sitting down with the family. I'm sure I had my Don BB jersey on and my cheese head on, my Packer Icy mug, and Mom was making hors d'oeuvres. I'm certain. Watching that game, being a little nervous at the beginning, I remember, and maybe this is just the child in me at that time, I was 12 years old, I was convinced, you could not have convinced me otherwise, that the Packers were not going to win that game. As I've gotten older, and I've been through the viewing wars now, like the 2014 NFC Championship game or the 2020 NFC Championship game, you learn more and more. The more your team is involved in those games, you don't get the storybook ending all the time. When I woke up that morning, when I was watching that game, at no point did I think the Packers were going to lose. It was a tight game early. The Packers pull away, and they end up winning 30-13, to pretty much in blowout fashion. And then at the end of that day, I remember my grandma, if you're a Sheboygan County listener, took everybody out to Clemmy's Wagon Wheel and Howard's Grove and the salad bar and all kinds of fun stuff. And we got to go celebrate and the AFC Championship game was on there. We were kind of watching that to see who the Packers would play in the Super Bowl. I just have a lot of warm memories of that day. I found the intro package on Fox, the lead into it. Now, this is a little long, and I know podcasts are audio mediums. You don't get to see it. You can find it on YouTube. The intro packages that they used to do back in the day were so dramatic, but they were so good. And then you get a little bit of the PA announcer at pre-renovation Lambeau Field announcing the Packers starters. You're going to hear the crowd go ballistic when he intros Brett Favre from Southern Mississippi. Brett Favre. And the crowd goes nuts. Then we're going to have about 20 or 30 seconds of the welcome into the booth with Pat Summerall and John Mann. It just gives you the warm fuzzies. Here it is. A magnificent Packer tradition. A tradition with legends as big as any in pro football. 
But today's Green Bay Packers seek to create a legacy of their own. And in 1996, expectations ran high, and the Packers delivered. Last week, Green Bay continued its championship drive with a convincing win against the 49ers. And today, 30 years since their first Super Bowl, they are determined to return once again. Two years ago, the National Football League welcomed the city of Charlotte. Up until last week, the upstart Carolina Panthers were the NFL's best-kept secret. But after a monumental performance against the defending world champions, longer. And suddenly, in only their second season, they seek to gain the ultimate respect. A trip to Super Bowl 31. No, this is what it's all about. You know, you just you just wait to get here, and I think this is a perfect place for it. I've always said if you're ever going to build a shrine to professional football, a shrine to the national football field, it should be right here in Green Bay Lambeau Field. Doesn't that just make you feel good? It actually has about five minutes of the complete video on YouTube. I'm sure there's probably a better version of it that looked like it was recorded off of VHS. I just really enjoyed watching that this morning. I'm going to add Packers starter jacket. As long as we were off the cuff listing favorite Christmas presents, I remember the year I got my Packers starter jacket too. Grandma always gave us $100 when we were kids, which when I was eight years old, you may as well have given me $10,000. $100? And I spent it that year. It had to be all of it. I think starter jackets are pretty expensive. And I spent it maybe the year, maybe it was Christmas 95, the year before they were in the Super Bowl. And I spent it at Kohl's on a Packer starter jacket. And I said, now I'll be cool. And I was wrong. <laughs> but it was a fun world to live in. It didn't make me cool. In my own mind, it did. God, those were so cool back in the day. I wish I had that thing back. It's so cool. All right, we get set for Packer-Panther weekend this weekend. A lot less dramatic than the intro package we just played. A lot less at stake. You've got the 6-8 and eight Packers who have just stumbled now after all of those good wins, that three-game winning streak, beating the Chargers, short week going to Detroit on Thanksgiving with a ton of injuries, winning there, beating the reigning Super Bowl champs at home in prime time, getting to 6-6. Six and six. Playoff odds were up well over 50%. I think they were around 70%. And then you were staring down this list of games, this five-game stretch of games where you're going to be favored, and we said then the playoff fate will be determined when you figure out whether or not this team can beat teams they're expected to beat. They go into New York on Monday night, lose to Tommy DeVito and the Giants in a tight one. Almost stole that one. How different this would look 
if that last touchdown pass from Jordan Love to Malik Heath, if Joe Barry could have done anything, any semblance of defense on that last giant drive, how different things would look right now. You lose that game, and then you sit at home to Tampa Bay. That one wasn't as close. Baker just shreds the Packer defense, and I mean shreds it. They just go through you like Taco Bell, like 3 a.m. Taco Bell after a night at a holiday party. That's how Baker Mayfield went through the defense. He went through that Packer defense like Brett Favre went through amphetamines in 1996. Just, <laughs> it was just unbelievable. And he was the offensive player of the week. I don't know that that was a revolutionary take by us on Monday. Pretty much everybody saw that coming. Back-to-back weeks now, Tommy DeVito, the NFC Offensive Player of the Week, and Baker Mayfield, the offensive NFC Offensive Player of the Week. If Bryce Young wins it, I know we said on Monday, I guess I don't. I, I see a point in sending a message to firing Joe Barry at this point. Clearly, Matt LaFleur did not do that. We'll discuss more about that in just a little bit here. If he loses, if they lose this game, And Bryce Young, who by all measures, and it's not his fault, really. The offensive line is a cesspool. It's just trash. He has no real weapons. They didn't set him up for success at all in year one after being the number one overall draft pick. But if Bryce Young puts together a game where he has three touchdowns, no picks, throws for over 200 yards, 70% completion percentage, you know, something like that. You almost have to, don't you? You, I mean, now you, then you've only got two games left, and you'd be sitting at six and nine. And uh, like we said on Monday, I don't know what looks different about this defense. If you're firing him and you're just promoting somebody on his staff, at least Baker Mayfield has a history in the NFL. If you give up three straight NFC Offensive Player of the Week awards, one to basically a walk-on quarterback, Tommy DeVito. One to a serviceable to at times above average quarterback in his career. That's a little more palatable, even though not really. And then if Bryce Young at the end of his rookie year with how bad it's been for Carolina, if he does something like that, you almost have to, I would think. I don't know. We'll find out. Packers trying to stay alive, though, in the playoff chase. We will talk about Joe Barry. Not shocking. We talked about it on Monday. I just don't see what the benefit is. Matt LaFleur, like we talked about on Monday, like the college friend that goes too hard every night and you continue to make excuses for them because you have a history with them. Matt LaFleur did that again. He blamed most of the issues on Sunday's matchup to breakdowns in communication, which he then, he did that thing where he puts his hand up and says, it's on me. And I really think he may do that to the point where he gets fired at this point. You can't do this now for how many years in a row? How many years has he been the head coach? 2019, 2020. 21, 20, is this fifth year, fourth year? It was so endearing in 2019 in his first year as the head coach in those first eight or so weeks where they had mistakes and he would always say hand up. And we thought, oh, wow, accountability. This is great. We love that. We love a coach with accountability. It's good. It's like Harry Truman. The buck stops here. This is what we need. We need a guy like this. Well, you keep doing it every time you have a loss or there's a game like this past Sunday and you say, it's on you, it's on. I mean, at some point, Matt, if you want to save your own job, you're going to have to say, it's on Joe Barry and we're going to make a change. Use him as a deflection shield. Do something. He did that thing that he always does where he says, hand up, it's on me. And his explanation in a roundabout way, was sort of what we discussed a couple of days ago. If he thought that that was the best move to make them better for the final three games, then he would do it. He doesn't think it is. I would tend to agree in that I just don't know who you put in that spot and the defense looks any better. It sounds like they are going to hang on to him for the remainder of the year. Joe Barry had a presser, it must have been yesterday, after practice on Thursday, and a bunch of the Packer beat reporters 
I'll give him credit. They asked him to his face, have you heard the rumors about your job being on the line? And he basically said, yeah, I read what you guys write. I hear what you guys are saying, talking to the beat reporters, and I understand that sentiment is not good for me. We'll see what kind of adjustments they make. He was asked about that, too, and said, he basically said, well, you know, we had some success with this at some time this year, which he's not wrong. You know, Patrick Mahomes had a quarterback rating of 80 or below in that win against the Chiefs. They did fairly well in Detroit. There have been spots of success for this defense, but it's been so bad the last two weeks. It almost erases whatever middling success they had at other times during the year. How bad it's been the last two weeks is almost like an Etch-A-Sketch. It just erases all of that. And then this is all we think about now are the last two games where you've made Tommy DeVito and Baker Mayfield look like all-world quarterbacks. When asked about adjustments, he said, I think it's the overreactions can tend to go a little too far. And we go, whoa, we need to change everything. When, in fact, if we just stick with what we've been doing and our communication gets better, maybe we can get back to the way we were in the middle of the year. They may look okay on Sunday. That would have more to do, in my mind, with how bad Carolina is offensively. The locker room doesn't seem super tight behind Joe Barry right now. There were headlines all week long. Devondre Campbell on Tuesday or Wednesday, he had a tweet where he had essentially said he is no longer going to play hurt because I'm trying to get it up here. I actually had it up. Did I lose internet in my kitchen table? I might have. It might. We maybe. We, oh, here we go. I blogged about it on Wednesday as well, where Devondre said, I'm no longer going to play hurt because all of the bleep comes back on me. We aren't sure what he was talking about there. He said, I'm treating, where is the tweet? Hold on here. This is a disaster. We've got disaster internet. Thank you, Spectrum. (laughs) Thank you, Spectrum, for helping me out. Right, here it is. Not going out of my way anymore, and I'm not playing through injuries anymore because when bleep goes wrong, they always use it against you. I'm treating everyone accordingly and giving them the same energy they're giving me. Focus on yourself and your mental 59. You owe it to yourself. Talking to himself. Talking like we do on this podcast a lot. Talking in a mirror to himself. He has been on the injury report a lot. They took him off the injury report before that game against Tampa. He makes it sound like in that tweet he was still hurt. He had a horrific day of all of the individual bad performances against Tampa Bay. And again, how much of it is on Devondre Campbell when he's in coverage against Chris Godwin, who is an above average to good NFL wide receiver. He is a speedy wide receiver. How you would expect Devondre Campbell to be able to stick with him in coverage, I have no idea. Devondre gave up something like 140 yards passing. The tackling wasn't great. He's saying he was hurt. There was another tweet. Some Packer podcaster, some idiot podcaster or blogger, some know-nothing bleep-for-brains podcaster had mentioned after that tweet about going after Joe Barry and not going after the players. The Devondre Campbell tweet could be interpreted, too, as fans maybe going after him on Twitter. If you're a player in the NFL or any sport, I don't even know how you go on social media because I'm just sure the comment section, especially after a bad game, is just littered with the darkest possible elements of social media coming after you and venting against you. And this podcaster or blogger said, you know, go after the architect of the defense. Go after Devondre Campbell. Don't go after or don't go, go after Joe Barry. Don't go after Devondre Campbell. Let's get to the root of the problem. And that tweet was liked by Devondre Campbell's wife, who is also pretty outspoken on Twitter. Gives you a a bit more insight maybe into where that Campbell tweet was coming from in the middle of the week. He had to sit down with reporters on Wednesday before they even asked him a question where you have to assume they were going to bring up that tweet. And what did it mean? He said, I'm not talking about anything that was put on the Internet. If you want to talk about the Panthers, fine. 
but we're not talking about anything that was on the internet this week. He has been pretty notoriously standoffish with media since he came to Green Bay, whatever it was, three or four years ago. That was out there, too, and then the added Mrs. Campbell-like of the call-out of Joe Barry and not the players puts another layer on maybe how the defensive locker room is feeling about the where things are right now. Packers opened as four-point favorites in Carolina. That is up to five. You would hope the defense against this offensive line could get pressure. That's maybe going to make or break the game. They did get pressure at times on Baker. They had five sacks on Sunday, but if they didn't get home, it was a guaranteed completion. I don't know if that's going to be the case this Sunday. You would hope it is not, and the secondary can hold up a bit better. Jair Alexander practicing this week. He still has a shoulder and a sling. It feels like we're not going to see him for the remainder of the year. Otherwise, the injury report, for the most part, for being the third to last week of the year, doesn't look too bad. Hopefully, the offense can keep going, too. They were okay against Tampa. Jordan Love had a fair game, fair to above average, would you say, game. He made some throws. He did miss some throws. Solid, though. Quarterback rating of 111 on Sunday. See if you can keep that going with all these young wide receivers. It does sound like Jaden Reed is going to play. Wick sounds like he should be out there. They're going to have Aaron Jones again in a limited capacity, maybe a little bit more than we saw on Sunday, where they used up all of his touches, basically, on the first drive of the game. Doesn't sound like Christian Watson is going to play. Packers now favored by five points. I don't feel good about it, but we are going to incorporate that into making some picks not too far off. The over-under is 37 and a half. I haven't looked at the Carolina weather report. That was the Sunday game last weekend where they had the Falcons in town, and it was a monsoon, and 2,000 people were in attendance. I'll be curious to see what the attendance looks like in Carolina on a Christmas Eve game as well with the state of that franchise. The Panthers don't have anything to lose in this game. That scares me a little bit. We talked about that on Monday. They're giving their pick to Chicago anyway. If this were Carolina's pick, whatever they're going to get out of this, the one, two, or three overall pick, and that's their pick that they get to use, perhaps they would be a bit more invested in losing this game or not caring as much about this game, especially after the head coach has already been fired. They want to win games, though. For the same reason, if you go back to when the Packers were three and six and we were talking on this podcast, my preference always and maybe to my detriment, is to win games. At that inflection point of the year, and we're kind of back there now with how bad they've looked the last few weeks, the point at that juncture of the season was at 3-6, and six, should they vie for a top-five pick? Does winning help? I'm always on the side of with a young team that's growing, learning how to win, learning how to close out games, to me, is more valuable for the future of this team than losing and getting a higher draft pick. That's where Carolina's at right now because this pick is not going to be theirs. They would prefer for their number one overall pick last year, their quarterback, Bryce Young, to continue to grow and get better every week and win games and have this their young team learn how to win games. That scares me a little going into this game where they've gotten literally nothing to lose. They're at home, and with the way the Packers defense has played, hopefully the Packers can take care of business. Now let's take a look at the playoff standing. Should we dust off the Aaron Rodgers? We're not dead. Let's see if let's let's use that again. But the biggest thing to remember is we're not dead. They're not dead. They did get some help on Thursday. They were going to get help either way last night. The Saints-Rams matchup. The Packers have the head-to-head tiebreaker with either team, and both were 7-7 seven and seven going into last night. Regardless of what direction that game went last night, a team was going to drop down to 7-8, and eight, and the Packers would be a half game back, and the Packers have the tiebreaker with that team. Right now, you've got the Rams in the sixth spot trending way up. They've got the Beckett's Green Arrow right next to their name. They're healthy. They've got good veterans on that squad that have won championships. They've got the pedigree still, the really good young rookie wide receiver. In addition to Cup and Williams, their running back has been outstanding. Stafford's healthy. They are 8-7. and seven. Packers are a game and a half behind them. Then you've got the Vikings right now with a tiebreaker over Seattle. 
They are 7-7. Seven and seven. Packers have a head-to-head there. I mean, look, the Packers have to win out. This is all a pointless conversation. It's like a cow's opinion. It's moo. If they don't win out, there's no chance. If they win out, I do think the Packers will get in. Whether or not that's a realistic possibility, I have no idea. Uh, most of the metrics out there have the Packers, if they win out, at a 92 or 93% chance to make the playoffs. That would include a head-to-head win against Minnesota. If you don't beat them next week, if you don't beat Carolina this week, and you don't beat Minnesota next week, this conversation makes no sense anyway, so let's live in a world where that happens. The Vikings are the last team in right now. You have a head-to-head with them, so you have the opportunity to leapfrog them. The bigger problem to me at the moment is Seattle. That win Seattle got on Monday against Philly was massive. They are 7-7. Seven and seven. I don't think the Packers have a tiebreaker with them if they were to be tied right now. And their schedule, let's just take a look at it. Their schedule is really soft down the stretch. Now, how much stock can you put in Geno Smith winning these games? They are at Tennessee on Sunday on Christmas Eve. It's a road game, but that should be a win. They're at home against Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's offense is dreadful, but Pittsburgh might be in the playoff conversation. They'll be playing for something. And then they end the year at Arizona, and Arizona, for the most part, looks checked out. You would think that 3-0 is a strong possibility there. When I look at the teams that the Packers now have to leapfrog, that may be the one that concerns me the most because I don't think you have the tiebreaker and you don't have a head-to-head with them. They are in the 8th spot right now. Saints are the ninth spot at 7-8. and eight. Packers would have a tiebreaker with them and get past them if they can win in Carolina. Packers are tied with Atlanta right now, and because it's just those two teams at 6-8 and eight, and the Packers lost the head-to-head, they don't have that tiebreaker because of the Falcon win in whatever it was, Week 2. I don't know who Atlanta has this week. We are obviously rooting for them to lose. They have... Oh, that's right. I'm picking against them. They've got the Colts. Not easy. It's at home, and the Colts are a team that seems to be getting it together. Then they're at Chicago. Bears are playing okay. It's on the road, and then they end the year at New Orleans, and New Orleans may hopefully still be vying for an NFC South championship if you have a future. If you know anybody that has a future on the Saints to win the NFC South championship, I was rooting for the Saints last night for that reason. It helps the Packers for the Rams to lose, and then it would have helped me for the NFC South future. They are now a game back, not looking great. Tampa seems to be in the driver's seat there. But that's where the Packers are at. It's not inconceivable. I think technically, as we're talking today, they have a 20% chance or whatever it is to make the playoffs. If they win out, though, they should be right there. They should be knocking on the door. Got to start this weekend. Got to start in Carolina. You cannot lose this game. If you lose this game, it's over, and then it's it's Jover. It's get rid of Joe Barry. And then at that point, I may even join the camp of, no, nah, I probably won't. <laughs> but it would be nice if I, if I could think rationally and realistically. If they lose this game, I may then join the camp of just lose the last two games and get whatever, get close to a top 10 picker just inside the top 10. Packers and Panthers in Carolina. Christmas Eve with the boys. Noon kickoff. We will get two picks on the way, but they'll be a part of that. We'll talk real quickly about college football. It was National Signing Day on Thursday. This, to me, is a lot like the Major League Baseball draft. I see these names. I see the four-star or the five-star or the three-star next to them. I know a lot of Badger beat reporters had, oh, they got the fifth-best defensive lineman in the entire class or the tenth-best quarterback in the entire class, and that's great. Good, great. But the signing day for college football reminds me a lot of the Major League Baseball draft where the odds are you're not going to see these guys as freshmen, much like when you draft somebody in Major League Baseball. We're not going to see these guys for at least a year or two. And I feel like the hit rate is about the same. You draft how many guys in the Major League Baseball draft, and if 20% of them hit and become serviceable players or good players, that's not a bad ratio. I feel the same way about college football national signing day. 
It seems like it was a good recruiting class for Luke Fickle. They are in the jungle now, though, where UCLA is about to be in the conference. It did throw me. I was watching Big Ten Network. It must have been on Thursday. And they had Chip Kelly, UCLA's coach, in the studio at the Big Ten Network headquarters talking about his recruiting class. And I thought, what the hell is Chip Kelly doing? Why do I care about, oh, that's right, (laughs) UCLA and USC and that whole cadre of teams, Oregon and Washington. Are Oregon and Washington in there right away, too? Good God, this conference is going to be a murderer's row. How are the Badgers ever going to be in the Big Ten championship game? That's what's so frustrating about this past year. You could not have had an easier path to a Big Ten West championship, a Big Ten title game. Maybe you get lucky in that game and get a win and get yourself into a Premier Bowl game. When you've now got Ohio State and Michigan top five teams every year, and you're adding USC, and you're adding Oregon, who is a top five team, and Washington, who is a top five team, or I guess Oregon would be a top ten team now. I just I And you have no more divisions, so you just have to finish in the top two in a conference with Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and USC and Oregon and Washington. How is that going to happen? How, Luke Fickle? Please tell me. Please make it happen. But it's going to be really difficult. Seems like it was a good recruiting class on Thursday. We did get good news on Ches Malusi, as speculated here on the Strange Brew podcast. He is going to be coming back. He'll only be 23 years old, but this will be his sixth year in college football with the medical exemptions, with the COVID exemptions. They need him, though. They did bring on a couple of young running backs on signing day, again, as freshmen. How much are they going to contribute? And behind Malusi and Braylon Allen this year, we learned and we're going to be relearning probably in this bowl game against LSU how thin it is at tailback with Acker or Aker. And then who was the other guy? I don't even remember. It's thin behind those two guys. Having Malusi come back is big. He is a guy that you know is an injury risk. He's had injuries now, what, three years at least at Wisconsin that have cost him a big portion of seasons. However, he fits more into the Phil Longo offense. That was very clear early in the year with the usage rate between Malusi and Allen. You could tell they just liked Malusi's style more with that offense. He is a better receiver out of the backfield. He's a good blitz pick upper. (laughs) He's a good kind of pick up a blitz. I don't know where that came from. A good blitz picker upper. (laughs) Not a technical term. He's very savvy at that, and he's a solid runner, too. How these injuries will impact him now and the accumulation of them heading into his sixth year in college, we'll see. But it is a great outlet to have, a great safety net to have a guy like that. Hopefully he can stay healthy. He does fit the offense better. And then as they bring these freshmen along, at least at the beginning of next year, you hope you have a guy you can rely on for most of a game, a guy who can give you 20-plus carries and give you a couple catches. That was big news as well this past week. Let's talk about hoops. The Milwaukee Bucks. Boy, it's almost as if this team needed a couple of months to get it together. Remember at the beginning of the year when the play was so uneven and Lillard and Giannis looked like they were a buffering YouTube video. They just quite couldn't get on the same page. The pick and roll wasn't looking too smooth. They didn't know how to play with each other. They are getting it together. They look smoother and smoother, and I think Middleton has helped with that. Being in this system now for however many games, 28 games into the year, And they're playing more and more on the floor. There are not a whole lot of rest days happening right now. And as we've gone over, AG, Adrian Griffin, is playing these guys. He's playing them much more than Bud used to. He's playing them 35-plus minutes a night, sometimes 40 minutes a night. That is also helping them build up this chemistry. They got the galvanizing moment with the Pacer rivalry. Indiana's been a disaster, by the way, since they won that or got to the in-season tournament championship. They've lost a ton of games in a row. Brought right back down to earth. 
That was a galvanizing moment, though, a common hatred for a young up-and-coming Pacer team. And then the whole game ball incident, they're starting to come together. The offense is looking like what we thought it would look like when they acquired Dame Lillard. They're a freight train. They have the second-best offensive rating in the league right now behind Indiana. I would be shocked if we got to April or May at the end of the regular season, and this Bucks team is not the number one offense in the NBA. That's just how good they look right now, and they're only going to get better. It's still only December. Defense is getting better. They've gone to kind of a hybrid of what Adrian Griffin wanted the defense to be, which we saw in the first week with not great results. They went back to more of the bud drop where Brooke was more around the rim instead of playing toward the perimeter. He's been able to blend this. Hey, credit to Adrian Griffin. The Wolves were out for Adrian Griffin and his job. Not shocking on Twitter where the knee-jerk reaction in all sports situations are fire this guy, fire that guy. Sometimes justified, Joe Barry. Sometimes not justified and too soon as with Adrian Griffin. You got to give credit to him. He is a first-year head coach. It's like he needed time, too, to learn how to be a head coach in the NBA and to bring all these parts together on a championship team. And he's doing that. He has blended the defenses, and they have a middle-of-the-pack defense now ever since the first week or second week of the year. They are the 14th-rated defense in the NBA in that time frame, probably still 18th or 19th overall. You can win with that, though. This is kind of like the Packers in Aaron Rodgers' heyday where they always had the top three offense or a top five offense, and you thought, God, if we could just get a top 15 defense, we don't even need a top five defense or a top three defense or even a top 10 defense. Give me the 14th-rated defense in the league, and this Packer team will win a Super Bowl. That's kind of where the Bucs are at right now where you've got this elite offense, an offense that feels like it can score anytime they want to, especially late in games. We saw it last night against Orlando when they needed a bucket. Giannis and Dame working the two-man game. Either Giannis would get to the rim or Dame would get fouled and he would get free throws and he doesn't miss free throws. This team feels like they can get points whenever they want to. If they have the 15th rated defense in the NBA and that carries over into the playoffs, which as we've learned over the years, it doesn't always do that. If that carries over into a playoff matchup and they can be a middle of the pack or slightly better than middle of the pack defense with their offense, this team is going to win a title. This team is going to be in the NBA finals, I would think, at the worst. Well, you know, Boston's going to be tough. In the Eastern, they'll be an Eastern Conference Finals team at the worst with the way this team is cooking right now offensively. It is all coming together. The homestand was perfect. I don't understand how the Indiana game in Vegas, by the way, is considered a home game. They're considering that a home game. The Bucs are 16-1 and at home, but they have a 16-2 and home record because that game is considered a home game. But some of those stats didn't count. Remember, that was the whole thing with that Pacer rookie and why they wanted the game ball. He scored his first point in that game against the Bucs, but really he scored a point in the in-season tournament championship game against L.A., but those stats don't count, but the win-loss in Vegas counts for your home record. They've got to figure out some of the fringe parts of that in-season tournament. The Bucs had a seven-game homestand, not counting the Indiana game in Vegas, and they go 7-0 and on that homestand. They take care of business this week against the Spurs. Wemby did not play in that game. What an interesting game that was against San Antonio on Tuesday. Just from the perspective of watching Giannis play in that game, I talked about this on the air on the B93 Morning Show. This team is so good, and Giannis is so good, where when they have an opponent like that, like a Detroit over the last weekend or a four-win San Antonio team on Tuesday, where Giannis, you can tell, like some of the all-time greats, just tries to find ways to keep himself entertained in a game. He knows they're going to win. We know they're going to win a 4-21 and Spurs team without Wemby. Now, how do we make this game entertaining? That's what I feel like Giannis is saying to himself, and you could tell. If you watch that game on Tuesday, 
He just wanted to distribute. He wanted to be Magic Johnson. He wanted to be John Stockton. You could tell he told himself before the game, okay, I can score at will against this team, but let's work on passing. Let's set my teammates up. Let's see how many assists I can rack up. And he set a personal record, 16 assists in that game. That was a career high for Giannis. And if you watched it, he had so many chances where he would get around the rim and you'd just wait for him to dunk or do the finger roll layup or get it off the backboard. What we're used to seeing Giannis do, and he would stop, and then he would find somebody else. It's just another another part of this era of Bucks basketball where he, we have a team that is so good. And we have two superstars, one that is MVP level, top two on the planet. And they're so good that they're doing stuff during a game just to keep themselves entertained. Michael Jordan used to do that all the time in middle-of-the-year games where not a whole lot was on the line and they knew they were going to win those games. He would do that, where he would work on specific parts of his game. That's where we're at as a franchise. It's incredible. He only had 11 points in that game, but 16 assists. Dame became a part of the 20,000-point scoring club. They did secure the game ball after that game on Tuesday. He only needed six points to do it. He scored 40. And then last night, they get a win against a pretty good Orlando team. Orlando's in that camp a bit with Indiana, where they are loaded with young talent. They've got the Wagner brothers, the annoying Wagner brothers from Michigan. And they've got Paolo there, who is the, was he the number one overall pick from Duke in the, in the 2022 draft? I think he was. They are growing together. They were 16-10 and 10 going into last night's game. Top four team in the East. They beat the Bucks early in the year in Orlando, where after that game, we were on the podcast saying, boy, that's a bad loss because it was early in the year. We didn't know what Orlando was going to become. And Orlando did not have a good year last year. You were basing it all on stuff from the year previous. Well, now that loss doesn't look so bad at Orlando, and the Bucks get back at them Thursday at Pfizer Forum. That is the final game of that seven-game homestand. They hang out at the end, 118-114. to Bucks are 21-7. and They're a half game behind Boston. Boston lost at Golden State in overtime earlier in the week on Tuesday. A half game behind the 21-6 and Celtics for the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. Now the Bucks finally hit the road. They're going to spend the entire week in New York, I think. They are going to be taking on the Knicks early tomorrow on Saturday, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. It'll be an 11.30 tip time on Saturday. These games worry me a bit because New York's not a bad team. The Bucs have a win or two wins against them this year. They beat the Knicks all the way back on Friday, November 3rd. Oh, yeah, and then they pasted them in the in-season tournament game at Pfizer Forum. I was at that game with my buddy Paul. They almost scored 150 in that game. So they're 2-0 against the Knicks. But the Knicks are a top five or top six team in the East right now. And you're going to Madison Square Garden. And as we went over in the Vegas game in the in-season tournament, this Bucks team, when they don't get their naps, when Giannis doesn't get his nap and they're playing early tip times, it always is a little disjointed. They are 11.30 a.m. Central Time, 12.30 on the East Coast, at New York tomorrow morning, basically, Saturday morning. And then they have the early game in the run of five games. I think the NBA does now on Christmas Day. The Bucks have the early game in New York, 11 a.m. tip time on ESPN on Christmas Day. By the way, if you're a Bucks fan, and we've discussed this a lot, cherish this. Cherish the Bucks routinely playing on Christmas Day. When I was a kid, the thought of the Bucks getting a Christmas Day designated game in the NBA was a fantasy. They're never going to play on Christmas Day. I remember it must have been 2018. And it was against the Knicks. They had the early game against the Knicks in 2018 or 2019. It must have been 2018 where they got that designation for the first time. That was one of the first moments where I realized, oh, this team is legit. And Giannis is legit. And he could be an MVP. And it's all coming together. They got the Christmas Day game designation. This is the Andy Bernard. I wish we knew we were in the good times when they were happening and not when they were over. We are in the good times right now. 
another Christmas Day game for the Bucks in New York. And yeah, they're in Brooklyn then on Wednesday. So they stay in New York for a while. They're going to have a lot of road games here. I When we this homestand started, I said, I can't remember the Bucks having a homestand this long. They were home from December 2nd. Take the Vegas element out of it. They were home from December 2nd all the way through today, December 22nd, 20 days at home. Now they're going to be on the road for a while. They're in New York for the two games against the Knicks, then they're in Brooklyn on Wednesday, and they wrap up a four-game road trip in Cleveland next Friday before the rematch on New Year's Day with the Pacers. I may have to go to that game. It's a night game on New Year's Day, and we are back at work on the second, but I may have to go to that game. I'm excited for that that back-to-back then against Indiana. Let's go over college hoops. The Marquette Golden Eagles, number six team in the country. Yeesh, tough one at Providence. That was on Tuesday when the Bucks were playing San Antonio. That Providence team, how are they not in the top ten? They dusted the Badgers early this year. And remember, that was when Greg Gard went festivus on us. He aired his grievances with his team. And the Badgers have been better ever since. But the Badgers played really poorly there. Marquette goes there for their conference opener, and they play very poorly. Providence's defense, those are some rabid dogs. That defense reminded me of those Badger defenses from the early 2000s. They handily beat Marquette, 72-57. to Marquette could not get their offense going. Not a great start to the conference schedule. Providence, with that win, they're 10-2. and They have to be in the top 25 when the new top 25s come out. I would be stunned if they're not. Marquette is back on the floor tonight. I want to bet them in a get-back game. It's at home. It's against Georgetown. Georgetown from my youth and from the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s to mid-aughts there till about 05, 06, 07 maybe with Jeff Green. That was always a 20-plus win team, a Final Four contending team. And then they hired Patrick Ewing, Patrick Chewing, and he couldn't do anything at his alma mater. The team steadily declined to the point where they were winning five or six games a year. Crazy when you think about how good that program was and the rich history with Georgetown. They make a move in the offseason to go to Ed Cooley, who was the former head coach at Providence. And he's got them off to a decent start. They are 7-5 and five on the year. They are 0-1 on the conference schedule. When I look at this matchup, I think Marquette's got to be angry about the way they performed on Tuesday. Now they're back home. Rivalry game with the fellow Catholic University Georgetown. Marquette is minus 17. If it weren't for the Ed Cooley factor, I would be all over this thinking Marquette's going to blow their doors off to make a statement after the way they looked on Tuesday. With Ed Cooley, though, bringing that same Providence defense into Fiserv Forum tonight, I think I think the better bet might be Georgetown, plus 17. Marquette will win. I don't know if they're going to cover and win this game by 20 points, especially with the way that program is turning around. That is tonight, 6 o'clock tip time on FS1 for the Golden Eagles, who are probably, if they win this game, I think they'll still be fringe top 10 at a 10-3 and record coming out of tonight. Badgers back on the floor. Finally, it's been a long break for them, about two weeks. They've got Chicago State at the Kohl Center. It should be an easy win, knock on wood. And then they have another extended break before they take on Iowa, I want to say, on January 2nd. Boy, January 2nd is going to hit, man, for everybody. Everybody's going to be back at work after about a week off. And for on the sports side of things, they're jumping right into conference schedule after a New Year's celebration. Is it another week off for this team? I think it is. Chicago State tonight. Yeah, and then off all the way until January 2nd at home against Iowa for their second conference game of the year, and then Nebraska right after that. They're going to have a chance. When you look at this Badger schedule, basketball-wise, they are going to have a chance. Not saying they're going to win all these games, but they are 1-0 in conference, 8-3 and overall. 
They've got Iowa at home. Then they've got Nebraska at home that Saturday at Ohio State. Ohio State not at the level they have been at in the past. At home against Northwestern at Penn State. There's a chance they don't play Purdue until February 4th, and that's the number one team in the country. Illinois, the number 13 team in the country. You could probably win six of your first seven here coming back from the New Year's break and make a statement and put yourself in that top two, top three spot in the Big Ten. Tonight, Chicago State at the Kohl Center, a 7 o'clock tip time. What else do we want to hit on here before we do picks? Oh, Major League Baseball. Brewers make a trade. I I don't know what they're doing, man. I don't know. If you can explain it to me, I'm not going to lose too much sleep over trading Adrian Hauser and Tyrone Taylor. Let's make that clear. This is not a move that determines whether or not this team is going to win a World Series or not. However, I don't understand what the plan is for this year at the moment. Now, they could still trade Burns and Adamas, and then to me, things make a little more sense given where they are with those contracts and what we could be looking at this year. There's a lot of time between now and spring training. And remember back to that 2018 year when they brought in Yelly and Lorenzo K on the same day. That was late January. That was as they were knocking on the door of spring training. There's a lot of time for trades to be made, to sign people, whatever. Where we stand right now, though, on December 22nd, I I can't make heads or tails of what this offseason means. It seemed obvious to me after the Woodruff injury. Before the Woodruff injury, remember we had that whole podcast where we talked about Let's do something different. Let's keep Woodruff in the final year of his deal. Let's keep Burns and Adamas in the final years of their deal. Let's add some legit bats, and let's pull a 2011 and go for it. The Woodruff injury threw a wrench into that plan. He's out for the year. Then they had to cut him. He's not even on the team. You lose your co-ace, and then to me, the path seemed obvious at that point. You trade Burns and get what you can for him. Get a haul for him. You trade Adamas and get what you can for him. You signed Churio, even though we didn't think that was going to happen, but that's probably the biggest move of the offseason. You lock in this 19-year-old kid, this once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully, prospect to a long-term deal with basically a decade of team control. You've got him as the centerpiece now. Get what you can for Burns. Get what you can for Adamas. Try to be serviceable on the field, but do a a mini-rebuild. Go through a year or two where you're probably going to win 70 games or whatever, 75 games or 68 games or whatever it is, and build for 2025. The rumors are that Mark Atanasio does not want to go into a full rebuild, which this would be. Yeah, full is maybe a strong word. I still think the word is soft. Soft rebuild if you trade Burns and Adamas. You'd still have Peralta and Miley at the top of your rotation. You still have a good back end of your bullpen with controllable pieces. And you have a lot of good, young, talented outfielders. You still have Yelly. I don't think this would be a full rebuild. But the rumor is that Mark Atanasio does not want to sit through a mini rebuild or a soft rebuild or a full rebuild. And for that reason, people seem to think that he wants to hang on to Burns and hang on to Adamas, some of the fan favorites and the best players on the team. I, they're middling it. Right now, and again, this can change, but right now it feels like they are middling it. They're making some cost-saving moves like this trade where they trade Adrian Hauser, who is not a world beater, but he was 8-5 and five last year with an ERA a little over 4. He's a serviceable major league arm that you can use as a fifth man in your rotation or a long guy out of the bullpen, or you can use him out of the bullpen in a variety of ways. He is a usable piece. And then you also trade Tyrone Taylor, who was miserable to begin the year, but you could make a case that at the end of the year, Tyrone Taylor was your hottest hitter in that playoff series against Arizona. He was the only guy that did anything. He hit the two-run home run in game one. He was robbed by Evan Longoria on what would have been the go-ahead RBI double, I think, in game one that would have given them the lead. 
he was one of the hottest bats on the team. And he's a guy that will hit you 240, 245. If he gets the at-bats, he'll probably hit you 15 to 18, maybe 20 home runs, knock in 60 runs. Again, a serviceable outfielder who has a little bit of upside. He's 28, 29 years old now. They send them to old friend David Stearns in New York. That saves them $8 million on arbitration. And they bring back a guy, what's his name? He was the 29th rated prospect for the New York Mets. And he just had Tommy John surgery. So he is not going to pitch in 2024. We will not see this guy until 2025. You make a move like that. That's a move for the future. You're saving money, and then you get a prospect that you might see in a year or two. That's a future move. Jackson Churio signing. That's a future move. If you keep Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas, that's a present move. I don't understand it. If you keep Burns and Adamas, and at this point, I think they are going to be on the opening day roster. If you keep them and you mix them with these new outfielders, these young outfielders, and you've got Yelly in there, hopefully he can continue to be decent at the top of the order. And you bring back a rotation with Burns, Peralta, Miley, and Colin Ray, I guess, at the top of it. And however Aaron Ashby looks coming back from his injury. That's a team that could probably do what they've been doing. Win 85 games and threaten for a wild card spot. If you do that, though, and you win 86 games and you are out in the first round in the wild card round like you were last year. And then Burns and Adamas just walk out the door and you get nothing for them. That feels like organizational malpractice. You've got to get something for these guys. As a small market team, which we've seen this week with L.A. spending over a billion dollars on two players. As a small market team, you cannot let Burns and Adamas walk out the door like Prince did in 2011 and not be a championship contending team. If you can vie for a title, if you have a legitimate World Series chance or an NLCS chance where you can give yourself your one step away... Then you keep guys maybe like Burns and Adamas and you roll the dice and say, we're going to try to win a title. If we don't do it, we gave our best effort. We put the best team on the, on the field to do that. Though, as constructed right now, the best version to me of this team is an 85 to 88 win team again that could maybe get an NL Central championship but more than likely would be a wildcard team and out in the first round or two in the playoffs. So I just can't make heads or tails of what the plan is here. Are we going to add pieces and do the whole 2011 thing? It doesn't seem like it. Are we going to trade the top two guys you have as trade bait and bring in a ton of prospects? Doesn't seem like it. I don't know, man. Uh, the, the Mark A version of this team right now, we love that we've taken a step out of the darkness. Don't get me wrong. When I was a kid, this team, every year you had no hope. They were going to be a 65-70 win team. They were never going to make the playoffs. That happened for 20 years. We are overjoyed to be at a spot in Brewer history where you're winning 85-plus games, you're in and out of the playoffs every year, you're giving yourself a chance. The more recent three or four years, though, I cannot quite figure out what the goal is of this team. Many Brewers fans have felt for years that Mark Atanasio, as a businessman, his goal is to do this, to win 85, 86, 87 games, stay competitive, keep the park full, keep the ratings good, but never do enough to go over the top. And I'd have to say, given the way things have gone recently and the approach so far this offseason, that might be accurate. Now, the Dodgers spend $1.1 billion in the last week. They bring in Otani, and then they sign the Japanese pitching import Yamamoto to a $330 million contract next year. 
Major League Baseball has got to do something about this. We are in another realm now. When I was a kid, you always knew the Brewers were a small market team and they weren't going to be able to compete with the Yankees or whatever. There was a huge gap there. The gap is getting bigger and bigger. The gap is outrageous now between the small market teams and what LA is doing. This is a whole different world. We always knew with no salary cap that you were going to struggle to compete as a small market team with the Chicago's and the New York's and the LA's of the world. That gap is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know what Major League Baseball does to rectify it at this point. I don't know how you rein that in or how the owners would approve a new CBA that would rein that in. But they bring in those two guys. Maybe that does change the Corbin Burns trade landscape. Maybe this is what Matt Arnold was waiting for. Okay, there were three or four premier teams that were in on Yamamoto. And now that Yamamoto goes to the Dodgers, teams like the Yankees, teams like that that were vying for his services, the Mets, Now that they missed out, maybe they'd be willing to overpay to bring in a guy like Corbin Burns. Perhaps this is the moment he was waiting for to swing that Burns-Adamas trade. As it stands right now, though, it feels like they're going to keep those guys, and then I don't know what the expectation is for this year. Maybe a wild card spot. Hope you get hot. I feel like we've been doing that now for a few years in a row. The Hauser-Tyrone Taylor deal, though, that was a cost-saving move and a move with an eye toward the next year or two. All right, let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to one on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. Yeah, 3-0-2 last week, everybody. 46-29 and 5 on the year. We are plus 17 units. We are a top-level gambling podcast. I don't know if we're number one. Put that record against anybody. Put that record against any gambling podcast out there. 46-29-5. And, and like we talked about last week, you could you could go back. I don't know why you'd want to. You could go back and listen to every gambling part, every Friday podcast, every gambling part. You can look at the game results and verify that is the accurate record. We're going to take some risks this week, though. We have one, two, three, four picks. I'm going to take on Sunday the Colts plus two and a half in Atlanta. I don't trust Atlanta, although they're better at home. I don't think Arthur Smith is a good coach. I don't think Desmond Ritter is a serviceable NFL quarterback anymore. The Colts seem to be trending upward. They're battling for a playoff spot, and they're catching points. I will take them plus two and a half. This one I'm scared about. It's a Saturday game. We've got Saturday games this week. We've got Sunday games. We've got Monday games all day for Christmas Day. I am going to take the Bills minus 12 and a half at L.A. against the Chargers. The Bills are red hot right now coming off of two massive wins. The Chargers gave up 63 points to Oakland. The part of this that gives me pause is that a team almost always plays better once their head coach gets fired and they've got the interim coach in there. We saw that with Vegas this year. We Remember, we bet on the Raiders when they fired, what was his name, McDaniels, and they went to Antonio Pierce as their interim coach. We rode that wave for a couple of weeks betting on them for a cover. That's what scares me. It's a big number. 12 and a half is a big number. And there could be some renewed enthusiasm in that Charger locker room because their head coach, Brandon Staley, is out and they've got an interim in. Still, though, I'm going to take the Bills at minus 12 and a half. I am going to take the Niners in the premier game on Christmas Day night. It's a 7-15 kickoff Monday night football. This could be a Super Bowl preview. Niners at home against the Ravens. Niners right now are the one seed in the NFC. Ravens are the one seed in the AFC. I think the Niners are a lot better than the Ravens, though, still. The Niners, to me, are the team to beat. They're just loaded. They have an all-star team on both sides of the ball. I will take the Niners minus five and win by a touchdown at home against the Ravens. And then I am going to take the Packers. When I look at the gambling landscape of the Packers, my feeling is this is probably the last time I can bet on them in a legitimate scenario where they have a chance to win. 
I will take them minus five at Carolina. I don't feel good about it, but I'm going to take a minus five. I don't feel like I'm going to bet on them at Minnesota next week, regardless of what the teams look like. I don't think I'm going to take them against Chicago at the end of the year. This feels to me like the last spot where I can bet on the Packers and feel reasonably comfortable. I will take them minus five at the two and 12 Panthers on Sunday. Again, Packers minus five, Niners minus five, Bills minus 12 and a half, and Colts plus two and a half against Atlanta. Hey, have a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy some time with family and friends. We will be back after it with another Kitchen Table podcast. I'm off Tuesday, Wednesday from work, but we'll do a Tuesday podcast after Christmas Day, hopefully a Victory Tuesday. Enjoy your time. We'll chat with you then. <laughs>